Let us pray together. Our God, it is wonderful, and we should never take it for granted that all the wisdom we need for these troubling times lies revealed in your living, unerring word. Equip and direct us today to serve you in our day with greater wisdom and hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we began looking at the biblical teaching concerning the Christian and the state, why the state should love us, but in fact hates us, should love us because Christians are committed to respecting the powers that be, keeping the laws, working, being industrious, law-abiding, caring for ourselves and others, and on and on. But what the state tends to want left to itself is to grow and grow and grow and to control every part of us, our thoughts, our words, our lives, and that we cannot go with. And they find in Christians immovable objects who uh, are not cowed by their greatest weapon, death. So we studied that last week, and and mainly we uh, stressed the doctrinal side, but this week I want to stress more the practical side of it. And uh, basically this sermon's going to have three elements in it. It's going to have Bible, and it's going to have Bible, and it's going to have, that's the one, lots of it. What is a Christian to do in this world? We're commanded to respect as far as we can, submit as far as we can, but we see sin, we see folly, we see policies we can't support and can't support and and participate in. Uh, Unlike Paul, as American citizens, we have a certain amount of power and participation that we can exert in our government. So what do we do? Do we dive into politics and immerse ourselves in that and, and work to make America Christian again? Or do we withdraw from it and just stick to our church and our holy little lives, keep to ourselves and wait for Jesus to come back? Or is there something between those two extremes? Well, let's see, and I think that it's useful if we start, Roman numeral one, considering how this all ends. I think we're immensely helped to see where we are now if we look at where God eventually brings us. So, Roman numeral one then, how this all ends, and I just start straight up with the the first question, letter A, what is our hope? So really, what is our hope as Christians? What's our fondest hope? Is our, our, our fondest hope to see uh, Texas secede from the Union? Is that the greatest thing that could happen? You probably don't answer these questions at first. These, it's best if you regard these as rhetorical questions. <laughs> or it could get, could get rowdy. This is Texas. But is our greatest hope that we uh, secede from the Union? Is our greatest hope the total destruction of the Democratic Party or of the Republican Party or all political parties? Is Donald Trump our greatest hope? Is an all GOP rule our greatest hope? And that's the greatest thing that could happen. Or all conservative rule, because many of you will point out that's not the same thing. Or a Democratic rule or, or a Democratic candidate or, or what have you, or a third party. I mean, is that our greatest hope? Well, let's consider what the next thing on the prophetic calendar is for the Christian. And that's Titus 2.13. Take a look there with me. Although it'll be a brief look, but I really do want you to lay your eyes on these words. The more of your senses you involve, the likelier you are to remember. Titus 2.13. So, I'll back up to 12, that 
God's grace instructs us, having denied ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Well, we kind of looked at that last week. We'll look at it more this week. But as we do that, what do we do? Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, my friend, that is it. That is the Christian hope. Amen? The Christian hope is not a red wave or a blue wave. The Christian hope is not a particular election outcome. It's not particular legislation. It's not particular judges on the bench. And the Christian hope is not the Antichrist or the tribulation. That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says that's a blessed hope. He uses a word that means it's a happy hope. It's a glad and joyous hope. We look for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our next prophetic surety. The next thing that the church knows is going to happen to us in God's dealings with mankind. We look for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our hope. And so when these other things do go our way or don't go our way, we should only experience a measure of disappointment or elation because no political current, no social wave, no cultural change is our hope. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for us is our hope. And uh, let me um, read to you 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. In fact, do turn there with me as well. That's, that's right nearby. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10. We'll look at two verses from 1 Thessalonians. So, in keeping with Titus 2, 13, uh, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 10, that um, the Christians there had turned to God, to uh, turn to God from idols, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now, of course, Jesus rescues us from the eternal wrath of God, but he says the wrath to come. And he returns to that in chapter 5, and he's talking about the 70th week of Daniel, which Daniel 9 tells us is for the Jews, and the Revelation tells us is for unbelievers and pagans. It's not for the church. He delivers us from the wrath to come. And turn to 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 next. Speaking right after talking about the tribulation period, the seven years of it. In verse 9, Paul says, For God has not appointed us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ rescues us, and that's what we're looking forward to. Not a political turn, not a cultural turn, but the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. And what will that eventually bring to us in our lives? First Thessalonians tells us that there's the trumpet call, and he raises us to be with Christ, to be with the Lord forever. But what do we do? Turn to Rome, uh, Revelation chapter 5, another book that starts with an R, but not Romans. Revelation chapter 5, and here John is seeing a, a scene in heaven. And in Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10, he sees the elders singing a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Now just a pause. This is a vision of Christ. God is holding in his right hand a scroll that is 
the tribulation period, basically, the beginning of the tribulation period, it's sealed with seven seals, and no creature is worthy to take that from his hand, but Jesus Christ is worthy. And he takes it from his hand, and he begins breaking the seals. Now, they sing this song to Jesus. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain and purchased for God with your blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and what? They will reign upon the earth. Now that's our future. The Lord Jesus comes and rescues us from the coming wrath of God. We're forever with the Lord, and when he returns to earth to set up his kingdom and to reign on earth, we reign with him. We are citizens and we are also authorities in that coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We share in his reign. So that's our hope. Our hope is Jesus. Our hope is Jesus coming for us, rescuing us, keeping us with him, and bringing us to his new kingdom, sharing in his reign. That's our hope. Now, let's unfold that and talk about what, how that happens, how it doesn't happen. In fact, that's where we'll start. Letter B, let's start with how doesn't it happen. This is our great and glorious happy hope. Nothing can prevent this. But what will make it happen? Let's talk about how it doesn't happen. 1 Timothy 4.1 But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now I'm starting there because this is how Paul, and this is very important, very instructive. You'll hear some otherwise really great Christians who don't get this. When Paul characterizes the times to come, how does he characterize them? Does he say in later times more and more people will be saved and more and more people will be pure in doctrine and practice and eventually there will be so many that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of God because of the conversion of sinners? Is that what Paul says? See, now notice he says the opposite. What will characterize the times to come is falling away from the faith. Now, if your hope is the church, who is it who's falling away from the faith? Is it pagans outside the church, or is it people who have professed faith in Christ? Well, you can't fall away from a faith you never professed, can you? I, for instance, have not fallen away from Islam. I'm not. I'm not an Islamic uh, apostate. Why not? Never been one. <laughs> never professed in any way. And so those who fall away from the faith are the church. Now, if, our, if we're pinning our hopes on the work of the church and bringing in the kingdom of God by effective evangelism and clever legislation, Paul doesn't characterize the times to come in that way. In fact, he repeats these points when he writes to Timothy. Turn to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5. Now, he's preparing Timothy to be a pastor after his death. So this is our era. This is, this is Paul's instruction to me. And in instructing me, it's his instruction to all of us. This is bracing us for the time we're living in. And again, how does he characterize this time? But know this, that in the last days, and I don't believe he means the last part of this dispensation. I, mean, I believe he means this dispensation. This is the growing trend of this dispensation. Know this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. 
For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, without gentleness, without love for good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, does that sound like a, like a world that is, that is gradually but inexorably becoming Christian? Does not, does that, let me ask you a simpler question. Is, was that the fruits of the Spirit he just lusted off? That would be a no. But look at what's next. Holding to a form of godliness, but having denied its power. Now, what's that? That's somebody who can make an, a, an orthodox outline of profession of faith. He can hit some of the main points and profess them to be true. That's a formulation of godliness but denying its power. These are not regenerate people. They're not saved people. And he says, keep away from such men as these. So the trajectory Paul sees in the days to come is not Christianization, but apostasy. And even the religion that is there will, to a large measure, be characterized by formality, by lifeless formality, and not by vital living relationship with Christ. With me so far? Thank you. One person said that so I can move on. So now to chapter 4. He has more to say. Now, he, he just gives this heart-stopping charge to Timothy in verse 1. I just imagine myself being Timothy reading this. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. All right, I'm listening. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and teaching. Why so urgent? Tells us in verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Who are they? Unchurched, unreached pagans or professing believers? The world never endures sound doctrine. This is not talking about outright un, unreached pagans. This is talking about professed believers. They will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears trickled will accumulate, tickled, or trickled, either way, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Tell them what they want to hear, don't tell them what they don't want to hear. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So, he says, you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now, what is that there? Is that a, is that a formula for turning this around? for making them not do that, for making times go in a different direction? No, what that is is a formula for what to do while times are going in this direction. Times are going to go in this direction. People will depart from the faith. They will find teachers who tell them what they want to hear. That is going to happen. They aren't going to want to listen to the truth. That is going to happen. The question is not how can you stop it? Are you with me? The question is, what do you do when this happens? And he said at the start, preach the word, and he says right here, you fulfill your ministry. Don't let anything take your eyes off the ball. You just keep doing what God's called you to do, and this is what God called you to do. Preach the word in season, out of season. When people are eager to hear the truth, perhaps it's a time of revival, 
or when times are like this. So, so this is the church that can't even get its act together. And I just think that I would be the most discouraged person in the world, although they are, as a rule, a very happy bunch. But if I were a post-millennialist, which is the school of thought that thinks that the church will eventually Christianize the world and convert enough people that will have a Christian society and that will be the kingdom of God, that will be the millennium. If I were one of those people, I would look at the church today and I'd just weep. The church can't even agree on the most minor, obvious things. The church can't agree on whether women should be pastors or not. Holding a Bible that says, I don't allow a woman to teach or, or exercise authority over men. What does that mean? We can't possibly know. And they're going to take the world over? Oh, no. In fact, Paul doesn't, does not at all give Timothy that thought. He reminds him of this in the presence of the thought of the appearing of Christ in his kingdom. Not of a successful, prosperous ministry, but of eventually standing before God and having his ministry in review and being able to say, I preached the word. I fulfilled my ministry. And the rest is not in his hands, nor is it in our hands. So, the course of this age is not (laughs) self-correcting. The course of this age is not self-redeeming. The church won't Christianize the world. The, The church won't bring in the kingdom. It will be an age where the church will constantly be battling upon, will constantly be reaching out amid unbelief and internally constantly battling apostasy, lukewarmness, and defection from the truth. This is what the course of this age will be. This is what the Word of God tells us. How many churches does Jesus write in the book of Revelation? How many letters does he send off to churches? Seven letters. And how many of those seven does he reprove? Five. Five out of seven, he says, I've got this against you. Five out of seven, and that's, they're not out of the first century. They've still got apostles. And five out of seven churches have to be chewed out. So I think if our hope were resting on politics, well, we'd be absolute despair and doom. And if we're resting on the church, I have to say the same. We'd be tempted to lose heart. Well, we'd be on good grounds to lose heart if our hope rested on the work of the church. But it doesn't. I remind you, we already hit that part. What is our hope? It's Christ. It's the coming of Christ, not the great work of the church. Letter C, then. We've seen how it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen by our... Look, let let me just make sure I say this as clearly as I can. It doesn't happen... Look, if it doesn't happen by our evangelistic effort, then will it happen by our political effort? Well, no, because politics doesn't even change the heart of a man. And and, and that's always going to be the problem, isn't it? Can you make enough laws to make a, a really great and happy and prosperous society? No, there's not enough laws that can do that if the society is filled with evil people. Only the gospel will change those hearts, and that's what the church does. But even that is not going to convert the world to the kingdom of God. Do you see? So if even our efforts at evangelism won't bring in the kingdom of God, will our efforts at politics bring in the kingdom of God? Oh, no. (laughs) No, far less. Far less. But it does happen. So, my question is, letter C, how does it happen? 
And here I'm, I'm looking at the larger picture, the larger question of how does the kingdom of God come to earth? How does it happen? That's letter C. Well, to see how it happens, no pun intended, turn back to Psalm 2. Turn with me. Yes, uh, open your Bibles or tap your phones and go to Psalm 2 with me. So you know, you hear it sung at Christmas time in Handel's Messiah. Why do the nations rage and so forth? They take their stand against Yahweh and his Messiah. And is God worried about the turbulence and tumult of the nations banded together against him? No, he thinks it's pretty funny. Verse 4, the Lord sitting in heaven laughs and mocks them. And what does he say in verse 6? But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh, the Messiah says. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely what? Give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. How do they come into his possession? Do the saints win them for him? Do the saints hand those over to him? No, God gives them to the Messiah. And what does he do then? You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. This is the decree of Yahweh, and it is the act of Yahweh to make this happen. His rule is by the word, the decree, and the action of God, not by an evolutionary process produced by man, even believing men. So, Psalm 2, 6, verse th- uh, verses 6 through 9. Now another two, turn to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. Now in this, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and tired of the fakery of his wise men, he apparently asked them to tell him both the dream and what the dream meant. Now if he told them the dream, they could have made something up. (laughs) But they had to come up with the dream and what it meant, and when they failed, he condemned them to death. But there was this one guy named Daniel to whom God revealed both the dream and its meaning. And so he appears before Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2, 3, 4. Daniel 2, verse 34. And Nebuchadnezzar saw an image made of different kinds of material that depicted four kingdoms. Kingdoms that, that, that start from his day and actually stretch to the end of time. And, and my point is not to look at that image right now. It's to look at what happens then. Daniel 2.34, Daniel says, You continued looking until a stone was cut out. What are the next two words? Without hands. You need to talk a little louder. I, I don't hear you as well up here. It was cut out without hands, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Now, what is the point in saying that this stone was cut out without hands? It's to say it was not made by man. It was not produced by man. It was directly produced by God. This stone is an act of God. And that stone strikes the statue and obliterates it. And here's more of the interpretation in verses 44 through 45. Daniel 2, 44 and 45. And in the days of those kings, the kings in that image, the God of heaven will cause a kingdom to rise up which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put to an end all these kingdoms. 
but it will, it will itself stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it crushed the image, the great God has made known to the king what will happen in the future. So the dream is certain, and its interpretation is trustworthy. So this kingdom does not come up from within. It comes down from without. A stone cut out without hands strikes the image. And what is this image? It's the kingdom of man. It's the kingdom of man. And God, God by a direct act, strikes it down and fills the earth with his kingdom. Another stirring image of this in Daniel chapter 7. Turn there. Daniel chapter 7. Now remember, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel this time has visions of the night. And he sees the great ocean depicting the nations. And this is important. Out from within the, the, the ocean come these animals. And they're scary and terrifying. I can't imagine seeing them. And, and they come up and they represent the successive phases of the kingdom of man. Now these all come up out of the ocean, out of the nations, out of the peoples. But then what happens, verse 13, And I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and came near before him, and to him was given, just like Psalm 2, dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So all the phases of the kingdom of man are depicted as animals. And they all come from where? From the ocean. They call, come up from out of the ocean. But where does the kingdom of God come from and what characterizes it? Is it an animal? No, it's one like a son of man. And does it come up from the ocean? No, it comes with the clouds of heaven. Like the stone. So, the Son of Man comes down to earth and establishes the kingdom of God. So you see, this theme is, is, is a, a constant theme in Scripture. It is not an achievement of man, even of godly men. It does not come up from mankind, even godly mankind. It comes with the clouds of heaven. That, that is about as stark a contrast as you can make with the waters of the ocean, the waters of the sea. So this kingdom comes down from heaven and sets up the kingdom of God, the, the universal global kingdom of God. Now, with that in mind, turn to Acts chapter 1 with me. Acts chapter 1, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's been teaching the, apostle, uh, uh, teaching the apostles. And then at the close of this teaching ministry, we see in Acts 1, 9, the apostles are looking at Jesus and we read, and he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. A cloud, like in Daniel 9, 7. But in this case, the cloud takes him up. Now, notice here, what do we see? They see Jesus. Are they seeing a vision of Jesus or Jesus bodily? Jesus bodily, his resurrected body. They see that body ascend in clouds into heaven and, you know, they hadn't ever read Acts before, so you can hardly blame them for just watching. I mean, 
what are they supposed to do? Well, what's he going to do? They're not, they're not absolutely sure what he's going to do, so they're watching. And then these angels come by, and they say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking toward heaven? This Jesus who's been taken up from you into the heaven, listen, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So how did they watch him go into heaven? Visibly, bodily, in a cloud. How will he come from heaven? Visibly, bodily, with the clouds of heaven. And he, his feet were on this very dust, this very planet. And his feet will return to this very planet. It won't be spiritual or, figur- or figurative. It will be literal and personal. And this, they say, is what's going to happen. He ascended without human assistance. And he will return without human assistance. It will be an act of God. So now turn to Revelation chapter 11. Read more about that as John sees it unfolding in vision. Now in Revelation there's seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. The the seventh seal starts the seven trumpets. The seventh trumpet starts the seven bowls, which close up the tribulation period and bring in the kingdom of God. So that's where we, we dig in here in uh, Revelation eleven fifteen, The sounding of the seventh angel, which is to say the seventh trumpet. And in the seventh trumpet are the seven bowls that conclude everything. So the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So with this, the concluding of the tribulation period, which are acts of God hammering this planet with judgments, hammering this planet with judgments, facing Satan's masterpiece, the beast and the false prophet, and hammering their kingdom. And with the conclusion of this now, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of God. And it will do so by the act of God, by the acts of God. And so read uh, now turn to Revelation 19, verses 11 and 16. At the conclusion of these uh, bowls in this period, uh, 19:11. Then I saw heaven opened, just as Daniel did, and behold, a white horse, and he who sits on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And then he goes on to describe him. And he says that his name, verse 13, is also called the Word of God. And he comes down with the armies of heaven. And verse 15 quotes Psalm 2, which we just read. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And then he will tread the winepress of the wrath of God, the Almighty. He has a name on his thigh written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Yes, armies accompany him, but he conquers. And who is this one on the white horse? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the stone cut out without hands. It's the one like the Son of Man. It's the one the apostles saw ascending into heaven. As prophesied, just as prophesied, Jesus comes in bringing in the kingdom of God. So that's how this all ends. That's where we're headed. We Christians are headed for the blessed hope of the Lord Jesus. Not for God's wrath, not for the beast. We're looking forward to the Lord Jesus. Not a red wave, not a blue wave. This is not something that will be voted in by a Republican Congress 
or a democratic congress or any work of man. It will be accomplished by the Lord God, omnipotent. Amen? That's what we look for. Can anything stop it? Nothing can stop it. So that leaves us with the question, though, what do we do now? It's very focusing and very clarifying. It's also very encouraging to see this. But what do we do? How do we occupy ourselves? Roman numeral 2. In the meanwhile, do business until I come, Luke uh, 19.13 says. Well, what does that mean? What does it involve? Well, letter A, generally it involves living a godly life. Now, Jeremiah wrote a letter. Jeremiah the prophet wrote a letter to the Jews who had been taken captive to Babylon. And yeah, they could have sat there saying, well, this is an illegitimate government. We shouldn't be here and so forth and so on. And he had different words for them. Uh, they could have just sat there saying, well, this isn't where we should be. We'll just wait till we can go back home. Or a, a, a hundred things, a host of things. But he told them what God wanted them to do in Jeremiah 29, 1 through 6. He wrote them a letter addressed to all, all the exiles. And he says, thus says Yahweh of hosts, verse 5, build houses and live in them. And plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives, become the fathers of sons and daughters. In other words, raise families, he says. Multiply, don't decrease. Well, now what is this counsel? He's saying, live your life. Live a godly life. Generally, put down roots. Raise families, build houses. This is where you live. Settle in. Don't isolate yourselves. Don't stay to yourselves and just sit on the southern border the, facing Israel, waiting for the day when you can be take home, taken home. Your bag's all packed and not engaging in any way in Babylon. No, he says, set your family there. Raise your family there. Make, do your business there. That's where I've put you for now. So they are exiles. Are we exiles? Not a trick question. Peter calls us exiles, 1 Peter chapter 1. This world is not our home. We're passing through. What would God say to us? Don't get a job. Don't engage. Keep your hands free of politics. There is a line of Christian thought that thinks that. It's called pietism. The idea that, well, we just practice our religion and we keep our hands off the, the filthy matter of politics. We don't have any involvement whatsoever with this world. Well, that is, not God's, that is not God's counsel. It's not God's counsel through Jeremiah to the exiles. It's not God's counsel to us. What he says to them applies to us as well. Live your life. Raise your family. Put down roots. Live a godly life. Now, that's a general answer. Let's get a little more specific. First, looking on the individual level, each of us as citizens. Individually, number one, godly civic engagement. Jeremiah 29, verse 7. Godly civic, C-I-V-I-C, not the car, but meaning citizenly, engagement. Jeremiah 29, 7. Seek the peace of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to Yahweh on its behalf. What? Where? Where are we talking about? Jerusalem? Babylon. Pray for Babylon? Pray for Babylon's welfare? Well, that's what he says. The city where I've sent you into exile. And pray to Yahweh on its behalf, for in its peace you will have peace. Now, I, I just want to tell you briefly, this word for peace means more than the absence of war. It's the he one of the Hebrew words that most everybody does know. Shalom, that's the word. And it doesn't just mean no war. It means well-being. It means a good life. It means a full God-blessed life. 
And so he's saying, seek the well-being of that city. Seek the good. Seek the blessing. Think, seek the best of the city. Uh, let me re-stress re, re, re that so you, you, you feel it. Seek it. In other words, study it is the meaning of that word. Study it. Apply yourself to it. Work towards it. Now, is this disengagement or engagement? It's engagement. Is this involvement or isolation? It's involvement. So that's seeking, but also pray. But not just pray, seek. So you seek what is best for them, for in its peace you will have peace. So they were to use their abilities to try to bring about peace. And all the more because they didn't know what was for their peace, really. They were lost pagans. And so really they had something to bring that was for their own good that they didn't have themselves. So they weren't going to bring about the kingdom of God. There's no imagination of that. But remember, but well, I hope you're seeing the two choices are not, well, what I'm doing has to bring in the kingdom of God or... I just won't do anything. <laughs> Those are not the two choices. We're not going to bring in the kingdom of God. So do we do nothing? Seek the peace of the city where I've sent you. Pray for it, for in its peace, you will have peace. Well, we'll, we'll return to that thought in a moment. But uh, keep it in mind, would you? Secondly, godly hope. Individually, we should live by godly hope. 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, having girded your minds for action, being sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on what? A red wave? A blue wave? No, the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you can tell by whether somebody's done that, if politics take a bad turn, is that person crushed and unable to function? If so, or to whatever degree that's true, that person has not done what? This. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Christian hopes do not rise and fall with the rise and fall of culture or even the church we know that only God will bring in his kingdom and meanwhile our calling is to occupy to do business until Jesus comes and to do it in godly hope but you see whether we can hope all depends on what our aim is are you aiming to bring in the kingdom of God then you will be disappointed are you aiming to make Christians act, uh, non-Christians act more like Christians? You will be disappointed. But do you hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace he will bring at his return? You won't be disappointed. You will be if you don't have any trophies to bring him, though. You will be if he appears and says, so what did you do with all of the opportunities and abilities I gave you? And you say, well, I knew this world wasn't my home and it was a wicked place, so I wrapped them all up in a cloth and I kept them safe. That will not fly well. I will tell you right now, that will not fly well. Jesus told us it won't. So godly civic engagement, godly hope, and thirdly, a heavenly walk. Turn to Philippians 1. Writing to this Roman... Uh, outpost, Paul says in Philippians 1.27, only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Interesting word, live your lives, is the word, the word politeista, 
from politeomai, that sound like politics? We get our word politics from that. He's saying conduct your citizenship, act like citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So, so it's not the Constitution, it's not any writing of man that, that ultimately dictates my life. It's my citizenship in the kingdom of Christ. It's the gospel. Uh, and I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind contending together for the faith of the gospel. So yes, I'm engaging, but my hope is the gospel. My focus is the gospel. My labor is in the gospel. In next chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait, a savior, wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in in heaven. So as I said last week, we have a dual citizenship. We may be American citizens, but we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And one day we will, we will have said the Pledge of Allegiance for the last time. And we'll never say it again, in all likelihood. Um, there will be nations in heaven, so let me withdraw from that rabbit trail and get back to the main trail, okay? Uh, there will be a time when we will simply be living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever nation we're in, that will be the kingdom of heaven as well. And so our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that determines the way we walk. We don't rise and fall with the fortunes of any human entity. But we are citizens of God's kingdom, living the gospel and laboring for the gospel. So that, that for, individual, uh, for individual investment. So let me say just a, a few more words about that. So there, there is a place for Christian involvement and even investment in political action. Why? Well, frankly, because we know what, what they don't know and we know what's for their good in the way they don't know. The truth is, they don't know what to, what, what to make of a baby in the womb. In fact, they don't know what to make of human life. I mean, there was a time when they knew that a human life was so valuable that if somebody wrongly takes it, the only thing that could be done is to take the life of the murderer. Now they don't know what to do. Put them in, put them in a box for 10 years? Put them in a box for five years. Let them go all together. They're not sure what to do. They don't know what that means. They don't know what a baby is. They don't know what a man or a woman is. But we know all these things. And it's for their good to know these things. And they can't figure it out because they're all starting at the wrong place. They're all starting at their navel. They're all starting with their glands and their feelings and their experiences. We start with the Word of God. So we seek their peace by bringing the Word of God to them. Wanted or not, and it's not wanted, but it is needed. And so we seek to bring that and to use our citizenship and our ability and our liberty to bring that to bear. But it's not our life because, A, that doesn't change hearts. The best thing that could happen to this world would not be a really great president or a really great congress. The best thing that could happen would be a revival. The gospel of Christ sweeping this nation, changing hearts, bringing people into the kingdom of God. And, and that should be our prayer and that should be our labor. But in the meanwhile, there is a place for seeking the peace of the city where God has sent us. Not investing everything, not standing in isolation, not looking for excuses and loopholes to say, well, this isn't really like the, the Jews in Babylon. 
well, this isn't really where we should be, so I won't really engage. Well, but this is where God has put us, and he's called us to engage and to occupy till he comes. So that individually, but now let's also look at what we are to do corporately, by which I mean as a church. And the first thing, disciple broadly and thoroughly. Let me explain that to you. Matthew 28, 18, and 19. Don't, it really, I'm sorry, it should be 18 through 20, not 19. It should be Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And you know that. So you probably don't need to turn there. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, Jesus says. Even though he's not sitting on David's throne right now, all authority belongs to him by right. And one, remember the parable that we just read as, as Jacob led us through Luke 19. He goes to receive the kingdom. That's where he is now. He's gone to receive a kingdom. He's not yet come back to reign. So he has all authority. Go therefore, that's you and me, that's the church, and make disciples of all the nations. Now, I know some of my post-millennial friends, they, that's their aha verse. We're to disciple nations. Now, do you see how they're saying it? They mean we should disciple governments. We should convert them into Christian governments, disciple nations. It doesn't say disciple people. It says disciple nations. Do you understand? I'm asking you if you agree. Do you understand what they're saying? So that's why our effort should be political evangelical. It should be political theological. Convert nations, convert their governments into Christian governments. But is that what Jesus is saying in the Gospel of Matthew? Have you spent any time studying the Gospel of Matthew as a church? I think you have. So when Jesus says disciple the nations, remembering that that is the exact same word that is translated, what else? Gentiles. He's saying disciple the nations as opposed to what? Israel. What did he say earlier to the disciples in chapter 10? Don't go into the way of the nations. Seek only the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And what's he saying now? Disciple the nations. Israel, everybody. So does he mean political entities? No. He means, just like we read in Revelation 5, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. That's what he's saying. So disciple them, make them students, baptizing them and teaching them to keep all that I command you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We are to take the gospel to every person, and those who believe were to baptize and disciple. And what does it mean to disciple somebody? It means to teach him how to walk under the Lordship of Christ in his life. So what if that person is a cook or a painter or a mechanic or a doctor or a wife or a husband or a representative, or a governor, or a senator, or a president. What will that mean? It will mean I will teach him as a pastor how to be a Christian truck driver, painter, security officer, policeman, congressman, senator, president. I will teach him what the Lordship of Christ says to him where he is. And so, though we may not convert entities into Christian entities, but individuals who are one to Christ, we will disciple them how to take Christ into their walk of life. And that's the proper way that the Christian church has uh, an impact on society. He will be a converted politician and also will, con will 
disciples citizens so that citizens will be Christian voters and vote like Christians and influence like Christians. You see, Christ's laws need to inform our laws. God judges nations by how the nations behave. And so, remember, we talked about this last week. This is where the cry arises, well, you can't impose your religion. You can't impose morality on people. Every law imposes morality. And every law comes from some kind of religion. The only question is, whose morality, what religion, and by what standard? The Christian has a standard. And so, yes, we do seek to influence laws by our morality, and, if you will, our religion. Our religion is the Word of God, and that's where we come from. So we do know what to make of a baby in or out of the womb. We do know the value of life. We do know about liberty and about responsibility and about uh, 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 theft and and the other things. And we bring that God-taught perspective into our citizenship, knowing we will not succeed in bringing in the kingdom of heaven, but knowing that God will. (laughs) That God will, and God will reward our faithfulness. So we disciple, we disciple thoroughly. Secondly, we pray inclusively. You're probably sick of that word, but it's just the best word. Pray inclusively. What do I mean by that? 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. I'll just read it to you. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. To a church, Paul says, first of, then, first of all, then I exhort that petitions and prayers, requests and thanksgiving be made for all men. All men? What do you mean? Oh, I'll tell you. For kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all good godliness and dignity. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the full knowledge of the truth. So, what, what, what is, starting at the end there, what's that about? He, does, he, does, does that mean God's just back there kind of hoping, well, I put the gospel out there and I really hope they all believe, you know, I'll have to see. No, when it says that He wills, it means He's declared. He's commanded. Uh, Acts 17.30, he commands that all men everywhere should repent. The gospel and the, and the, the, the command to repent and believe goes out to all men. Not, not just certain strata, not just certain races, not just certain offices. And so we should pray for all men. God's command and invitation goes out to all men, so we should pray for all men, including kings. And toward what end? That we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness. Now, does that remember... Does that, Sound like something I asked you to try to remember? I know there's been an awful lot. But Jeremiah 29, 7, seek the peace of that city where I've sent you because why? In its peace, you'll have peace. And what does Timothy say? Paul say to Timothy, pray for the rulers that we might have a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness. See, so, so there it is. So I, I challenge you. I imagine that many, I could, I could ask for a show of hands of, how many of you have ever said anything about President Biden, about Charles Schumer, about, about so I could list off any politician you care. Now, my next question would be, and have you prayed for him? And have you prayed for her? And that's what this verse is. And if you say, yes, I prayed that God would crush them. Well, <laughs> I mean, do you think that's what Paul means? <laughs> at, at least primarily. No, you should, I hope nobody said yes. You, you, you should pray that God, for, in the first place, save them. And convert them. These are lost souls, just like you and me, just like we were apart from God's grace. We should pray for them. So, 
Pray inclusively, and finally, make a Christ-centered impact. And here it is, the catch-all verse, Colossians 3.17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All that you do, life as a husband or wife, life as a child, life as an employee, life as a citizen, as a voter, as a person involved in life, do what you do in the name of the Lord Jesus, in conscious loyalty to Jesus, which means in conscious thought about what did Jesus say. I mean, that, that's the Christian's motto. It's not what would Jesus do. It's what did Jesus say. That's what guides us. So whatever you do, he says, so make a Christ-centered impact. Be a Christian citizen as you are a Christian employee and a Christian spouse and a Christian child. Be a Christian citizen. So in some, we live in difficult times. Of course we live in difficult times. God's people have always lived in difficult times. This is, after all, the kingdom of man. And who's the God of this age? Why, that would be Satan. That would be Satan. But God's kingdom will come. And God's Messiah will come. And there is no power on earth or in hell that can stop it. And it will come exactly the moment, exactly the nanosecond that God determined from all eternity that he would come and that the kingdom would come. So our goal in the meanwhile, between where we are and that moment, is to serve in a Christ-centered way, to serve hopefully, to serve doggedly, faithfully, joyously, so that we might have treasure to bring him when he comes. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word, and for the wisdom and instruction that it brings us. And we pray that it will resonate with us and that we will see in a personal way how it applies to us and our choices in life. And grant us to glorify you here in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.